In just a moment, we're going to be talking about something that speaks to evidence of belief. So when you look at your life and when I look at my life, there are certain things that make it obvious, in my opinion, whether or not we actually trust in Christ, whether or not Christ lives within us. Scripture describes these things sometimes as as fruit, sometimes it's spoken of uh, in other ways as well. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, the second half of the chapter. And uh, we're going to pick up with verse 9, and we're going to go all the way down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 21. And we're going to be talking about what this scripture describes, in my estimation anyway, three ways that you might be able to tell someone actually believes in Jesus. And when we look at this portion of scripture here, and we take it a section at a time, you can see that there's evidence given here of the kind of change that Christ works in a person's life. So if you're following along with me, Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 9, this is what it states. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to carve out some time today to be able to look at it and to meditate on the things that You communicate in Scripture. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege that You've given us today to be able to uh, just gather together and lift up Your name in prayer and, and worship You in the studying of Your Word. And we pray, Father, that You'd open our hearts and our minds to understand the truth that You've communicated here and that You'd help us to walk with You, that we would give evidence in our daily lives of what it looks like to be a person who genuinely believes in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we thank You, Father, for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of Your Word today. And we commit this time to You in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier this week, and uh, I, I tend to do this, by the way, during uh, any season of the year, but during this particular season of the year, I do this a little bit extra. I look at the weather forecast. 
And you probably look at the weather forecast as well. And so I get really excited when we get to this time of the, of the year because spring has started and I don't really have seasonal allergies or, or anything like that. I might sneeze a little bit extra as the pollen gets activated. But for the most part, I'm just grateful that it's sunny again. I'm grateful that the weather outside is nice. I'm grateful that I could just kind of get outside and, and do things. And I always phrase it this way in my mind. I, I look at it when we get to the start of April. I think, all right, we have as much of the good weather right now as you get in the year to look forward to. So we've got like seven months probably here before we, our minds are really going to be starting to think about winter and things like that again. And so I was looking at a forecast, and um, it was a forecast from a news station near where I grew up, but I follow them online. And uh, this is what the, the forecast said. This is what the headline said. It said, Easter will be here before you know it, but before that comes Palm Sunday. Find out what the weather will be like in the long-range forecast. Now, does anything about that headline stand out to you? Did anything stand out to you when I read that? It says, Easter will be here before you know it, but before that comes Palm Sunday. Find out what the weather will be like then in the long-range forecast. I thought that headline was a bit interesting, and the reason I thought it was interesting is because this is a news station. I happen to know one of the meteorologists there, and I happen to know that he does not share your faith and my faith, and I thought it was interesting that that's what the headline said related to the news because I actually think he was the one that had posted it, and to me, it it showed a certain degree of Christian influence that's still prevalent in our culture, even among those who don't necessarily share our belief. The fact that certain things, milestones on our calendar, that somebody, not so much that they would reference Easter, but that they would reference Palm Sunday. That was something that just kind of stood out to me a little bit when I saw that. I thought, yeah, Easter you'd probably, you know, even culturally still reference, but I thought it was interesting that he referenced Palm Sunday. You know, some Christian influence still prevalent among those who don't necessarily share our beliefs. And I bring that up because when you take a close look at your heart and you ask yourself questions, can you say that you're truly someone who has a strong relationship with Jesus Christ in a very personal way, or would you primarily describe yourself as somebody who has been influenced by Christians without necessarily adopting Christian belief as your own? Because there's a big difference between the two. And when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, Things change. Now, spiritually speaking, Scripture tells us that when we come to faith in Christ, we are raised from death to life. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and we're brought to life through faith in Christ. And that new life, so when you go from being dead to being alive, that's going to come with some very obvious and visible signs. There are going to be some things that... that testify to the fact that the Lord has just accomplished bringing you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And as we look at this second half here of Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 9, when you look categorically at the things that the Apostle Paul is describing here in this passage, what he's doing here is he's describing at least three ways that, that we might actually be able to tell that somebody's come to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the things that he brings up in this passage is this, you could begin to see that Christ's love is having a transformative effect on them. When you take that first section as a category, 
He shows us here that Christ's love has a transformative effect. Look at what it says in verse 9. It says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pause there for just a second. I was listening to an interview, and I believe I referenced this one other time, but it kind of stood out to me, and I was reminded of it again this week. But I was listening to an interview several years ago with a retired professional athlete. I won't, I won't blab his name. Um, but in the, in the interview, he was talking about different seasons of life that he's gone through. And he described one particular season of his life as being a very arrogant season. Now, do you have people in your life that you're like, oh, they're always in an arrogant season, right? Like, but in his context, he felt, and people that knew him well said, no, this guy was arrogant. He was arrogant. He was a womanizer. He was involved in taking all sorts of drugs. And that was the pattern of his life. And that was the reputation that he'd had up to that point. And he became smitten with this one particular woman. And he actually convinced her to marry him. So she said yes. And they got married. And uh, during the course of their marriage, during the early years, she came to faith in Christ. And she started going to church regularly, and she began asking him if he would decide to maybe join her and uh, come to a worship service from time to time. And he said, nah, you know, I, that's not really for me. That's not my thing. She's like, all right, you know, I'd, I'd love to bring you. And uh, eventually they, they started having children. They had a son. And uh, this man was still taking drugs and still doing all the different things that he was doing. And uh, a lot of times he said when he would take drugs, he would, as he was kind of coming down from that, he would get excessively tired. And so he would find himself laying down on the couch in their living room and just trying to sleep it off. And he said one day while he was kind of half awake and half asleep, his son uh, came by and looked at him and then just commented, oh, daddy's sleeping again. You know, Daddy always gets tired. Daddy sleeps a lot. He's sleepy. And this athlete realized the primary thing that my son associates me with is the effect that drugs are having on me and what it's doing and this fatigue that it's creating. And he's like, I got it. something's got to change. So he actually took his wife up on her offer soon after that to go to a worship service. And then soon after that, he came to faith in Christ. And it's interesting to hear people describe him before and after. Because he was very talented in his sphere. But he was known as being arrogant and people despised him and they couldn't stand him. And then he comes to faith in Christ and he's still great at what he does, but he's not arrogant about it. And he begins displaying the love of Christ and it became a very powerful and convincing testimony to those that actually interacted with him regularly, particularly those who knew him beforehand and could see the transformation that Christ was making in this man's life. Christ makes a point to do that very thing in our lives, does he not? Isn't he just the expert at transforming us? And the transformation that the Lord is doing in your life and my life is a powerful testimony to those that we interact with. It's a powerful testimony to those who have had the opportunity to observe us over a long period of time. I can still remember hearing my sisters react to the transformation that the Lord was working in my life when I became serious about my faith. 
I'm the oldest child. I have two younger sisters, and um, they knew me before I came to know the Lord, and they've known me since I've, co- I've came to know the Lord. And I remember it becoming something that they talked about as they watched the Lord transforming me from someone that treated them one way to then all of a sudden actively desiring to display the fruit of the Holy Spirit as I interacted with my younger siblings. And I remember them particularly noticing that during the second half of my high school years because that was a time where it was obvious to them that Christ was making a transformation in my mind, in my heart, in my life. And the people that I interacted with most, my siblings, were being uh, blessed by the transformation that Christ was accomplishing in my life. And when you look at what Paul says here in Romans chapter 12, as he goes into additional detail about what these things look like, particularly, you know, when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and their life is transformed by Christ, he paints a picture here. He gives us a picture. And and really, you can almost look at these things as like, like bullet point uh, type of things that we would say are evidence of the internal transformation that Christ accomplishes in the life of those who trust in Him. And so when Paul's describing this here, he's describing a person transformed by Christ, and some of the evidence is the display of genuine love. Meaning, as one who, who now becomes very highly conscious of the love of Christ that they have received, so as they become conscious of the love of Christ that they've received and, and appreciative of the love of Christ that's been displayed to them, as an outpouring of that, they begin manifesting that love to those that the Lord places in their life. Now, sometimes they manifest that love through showing brotherly affection. Uh, when you look at what the Scripture here tells us, it, it, it tells us other times they manifest that love by honoring somebody else above themselves. Frequently, they show that love by giving to meet the needs of those who are their brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul also goes on as he's painting this picture. He makes a point to to stress that, that there are things that they used to invite into their lives that they no longer invite in. Specifically, they make a point now to, to, to stop inviting evil into their lives, while at the same time they begin embracing what is good, what honors Christ. Paul also explains the effect of Christ's presence uh, on their attitude, because their attitude is changing. They become zealous for good works. They're looking for opportunities to actively serve the Lord. They're learning to rejoice with hope in all circumstances and remain patient in the midst of seasons of persecution or tribulation or things of that nature that may come their way. You can see, even you could, I mean, we could see it in our own lives, right? You've experienced this if you've trusted in Christ. You've seen this in the lives of others who've come to faith in Christ. But Paul, as he, as he goes through these details here in Romans chapter 12, he's painting a picture of the transformation that Christ effects in the life of those who come to him. We're also being told that one who is being transformed through faith in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit will be someone who becomes constant in prayer. And when I notice that Paul says this here, right? He says it in verse 12. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I look at that and I think that is the logical outpouring of genuine faith. Wouldn't you agree? That prayer would be the logical outpouring of genuine faith. Meaning, 
as we become more conscious, conscious of the fact that Christ is near us and that His power is available to us, I think we're more likely to communicate with Him and I think we're more likely to seek His intervention in our lives. You become convinced that He's real. And when you stop thinking about Him as being distant and off some, you know, in some far distant galaxy or, or however you used to picture Him, but you begin to realize, no, He's right here. He's right here. He's all around me. He lives within me. And He's also, not only is He present with me, but He's also offering me His power in the midst of my tribulations, in the midst of my persecutions, even in the midst of just a down day. He's offering me His power. And I believe He wants to give that to me. Why would I not communicate with Him? If I believe He's right here and I believe He's offering me something that I need, why would I not ask Him for it? And so Paul's talking about this as being like this outpouring of genuine faith that a person will be constant in prayer. Not as a chore. Did you ever think of of prayer in your life as a chore at one point? You ever think about it as like, all right, well... (laughs) My goodness, all right, well, sometime today I need to, need to pray. And then you get to the end of the day or the start of the new day and you start realizing that the day before you didn't pray like you thought you were going to pray. And you're like, all right, today is going to be the day. And I think sometimes there's a time to carve dedicated time out for prayer. And then there's also time to pray as you're going. You know, just as you're going through the day. You know, in the midst of a moment. Hey, Lord, that, that person that uh, slowed down yesterday on the turnpike really abruptly in front of me and I didn't hit them. Thank you, Lord, for that. You know, thank you. Pray as you're going. Hey, Lord, uh, this meal is delicious. Thank you. I know you created these things, including my taste buds, so that you allow me not only to get sustenance from food, but to enjoy it the whole time. This is wonderful. I appreciate your design. You know, Lord, thank you for this season of the year. Lord, thank You for Your presence with me. Lord, I'm not having a great day, but I'm content that You are sufficient for everything that I need. We're praying as we're going. And Paul describes it here as being constant in prayer. An attitude of prayer because you're continually convinced that Christ is right there with you. Not at a distance, but He's right there with you. I also noticed in my life that when my understanding of Christ changed from Him being distant to being near, that also had a restraining effect on my desire to indulge in sin. We all have things that we find that are tempting to us, or things that tempt me and things that tempt you. But in my mind, when I look at it this way, when I picture the fact that Christ really is right here with me, that robs me of some desire to rebel against Him. Because He's right there with me. And He loves me. And His love is having a transformative effect on how I think and perceive and interact in just day-to-day life. And so Paul opens up this section that we're looking at by describing some of these things. And and, And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, all right, he's describing evidence of genuine faith. This is what it looks like when someone genuinely believes and their faith begins maturing. Is evidence of Christ's presence in a person's life. The Scripture goes on to describe a little bit more for us. When you look at verse 14 down to verse 18, it starts talking about the fact that when a person genuinely comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they begin people or they begin treating people that they once avoided in a new way. Look at how it describes this process, starting with verse 14. Paul encourages the church. He says, "Bless those who persecute you." 
Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Who do you tend to gravitate toward? Like in your day-to-day life. Just think about that for a second. Who do you tend to gravitate toward? You know, like what kind of personalities, what kind of people? Have you ever noticed a pattern? The people that you tend to gravitate toward? I've definitely noticed a pattern in my own life, and I'd be curious, you know, just if you've ever thought about that. Like, who do you tend to say, hey, I want to spend more time with them? You know, so do you gravitate toward people that you think, oh, well, that person's entertaining, that person's funny? Or do you gravitate toward people that you say, you know, that person just kind of exudes confidence? You know, I I feel, feel drawn to spend more time with that person. Or maybe you gravitate toward quiet people because your life is just so loud and you think, all right, you know what, that person is quiet and um, sometimes they just sit and they don't say anything. It's my kind of person, right? Or maybe you gravitate toward people with authority. Or maybe you gravitate toward, you know, people with just some other personality trait or something else going on in life. But why do you suppose you gravitate toward the people you gravitate toward? You know, is there something you're trying to learn from them? Do you just find, in general, you're more comfortable around them? Is there something that you hope that they'll give you that maybe right now you feel you're lacking? Now, reverse that whole train of thought. Completely reverse it. And think about, you know, the opposite of who you tend to gravitate toward. So that would be the people that you tend to avoid. Who do you tend to? to avoid. Historically, who have you tried to avoid over the course of your life? Do you avoid those who have hurt you in the past? None of us would blame you if you did. You know, if people have a history of hurting you, do you think, yeah, I tend to avoid those people. They have a history of hurting me. Or do you tend to avoid those that tend to be maybe more sad and downcast all the time? Or do you avoid those that maybe you think are at a lower station of life than you're at? Do you avoid those that maybe you think, all right, they're not as well learned as me, so maybe I should avoid them? Why do you suppose these things may be? Why do you suppose there are people in your life that historically you have, maybe you haven't avoided them, but you've maybe been tempted to avoid them? You know, are you trying to protect your heart from pain? It's one of the things that I think is useful for us to ask. Are we trying to protect our heart from pain? That's something that we all tend to do, right? We tend to, we don't, you know, none of us jump up and down at the thought of experiencing more pain. So if there's somebody in your life that has had a history of hurting you, again, I don't imagine that any of us would blame you if you said, yeah, I kind of avoid that person because they tend to be a bit hurtful, you know, or historically have hurtful, or they've hurt people that I love. And because they've hurt people I love, I kind of have a caution flag about that person? Are you trying to be stretched or avoid being stretched? You know, or or trying to avoid being inconvenienced and maybe that's why we would avoid certain people? It's interesting when you look at Scripture. Obviously, our greatest example of how to interact with others is Christ Himself. Christ is our primary example when it comes to interaction. 
And during the course of Christ's earthly ministry, he treated people in a way that amazed them. People were amazed when they would observe the ways in which Christ was treating people. So what he would tend to do when you look throughout the Gospels, he would tend to be confrontational with those who thought they were better than others, while at the same time joyfully associating with people who felt ostracized by others. Now, Christ received a lot of criticism when he would do this, but that's the pattern you can see throughout the Gospels. So he tended to confront the religious leaders, particularly when they would act as if they were better than the people that God had called them to serve. And yet at the same time, you have Jesus interacting with the people that socially speaking, there would be a consequence, at least, you know, in some social circles for him, for associating with the people he was choosing to associate with. There's multiple places in Scripture that describe this process taking place. But in Luke chapter 5, you can see a few things that I'll point out to us here. In Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 29, it says this, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. By the way, April 15th is coming up. Everyone get their taxes done? Yeah, most? Who did not? This week. This is the week. I'm going to get it done. I better, right? (laughs) So anyway, it says there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So I highlighted there on the slide for us just to point that out. But I mean, can you just picture this moment? Can you just picture the sneer that is accompanying that question? You know, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Why would you do that? Like, why would you do that? Like, do you, if he, if you're, if, if your guy, if your rabbi here is trying to build influence with people and he's hanging out with these people, don't you think he's doing it backwards? Why would you hang out with them? Why would you have a meal with them? Don't you know what these people do? You know, I mean, these are not people of great reputation. And your rabbi, your teacher, your leader, he hangs out with them all the time. And not only do you hang out with them, and, and you're, it's not only that you're just being polite, like you're sitting down for conversation with them. And you're laughing with them. And you eat food that their hands have prepared. Why would you do that? Why do you eat with tax collectors? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Good answer. (laughs) It's a good answer. You know, he's he's like, look, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the interesting thing about those who are sneering at Jesus and his disciples is they looked at themselves as already righteous. So even as they're hearing what Jesus is saying there, they're probably like, oh, okay, well, that's why he doesn't hang out with us because we're already righteous. And what's his point? It's kind of like a double point. He's like, they need my righteousness, and guess what? You need my righteousness as well. You think you already have it. You think that it's something that you welled up within you, and you got so good, and you got so smart, and you got so eloquent, and you learned how to avoid, at least in public ways, all the things that might get you a bad reputation. And Jesus is effectively saying, as he's looking at these men, he's like, I know what's in your heart. I know what's in their heart. 
And I know how much you fight repentance because if you're going to repent, that means you have to admit that there's something that's not right. And you'll never admit that it's not right, so you're never going to walk in repentance, which means effectively what Christ is saying is you're never going to get to know me like these people get to know me. Because there's no pretense with them. They'll admit to you that they've goofed up. And because they'll admit that they've goofed up, they'll get to experience the joy of repentance and they're also going to get to experience the joy of forgiveness. And they're going to go from being those who are sick with their sin to being healed. They're going to be cleansed of their unrighteousness through Jesus Christ. That's what he's illustrating in this conversation. It's the deeper level thought behind what Christ is trying to communicate here. But he's criticized for it. Because he's associating with people that they think he should avoid. Well, one of the most visible ways that you can tell that Jesus now lives in someone is when they begin treating people that they used to avoid in a brand new way. And when you look at the ways that Paul describes that here in Romans 12, he speaks about the fact that they begin to bless those who persecute them. Imagine that. Blessing those who persecute you. Showing kindness and blessing to those who have a history of hurting you. Showing kindness to those that you think there's a risk they might hurt you again. Imagine that. They fellowship with those who rejoice and with those who weep. So not just hanging out with those who are rejoicing, but also spending time with those who are going through a season of grieving. They seek to live in harmony with others to the best of their ability. Some people just won't let you have that harmony, right? But as far as it depends on them, they seek to live at harmony with others instead of provoking fruitless division. They exhibit humility. They're willing to be known as a friend to someone who's at a lowlier position of life than they think that they themselves are at, even without bragging about it, right? You know, one of the things that, um, that sometimes gets under my skin If you ever have the opportunity to serve those who you would say are disadvantaged, don't take a selfie of yourself while you're doing it and post it online. Look at me in my clean clothes. This person's a wreck. They live in a garbage dump. Smile. Drives me nuts. And here, when you look at what Scripture says, it's the idea of being willing to associate with those maybe having a little bit of a harder time and a lowlier stretch or a lowlier season of life. And I think the idea, when it talks about these things being done with humility, I think the idea is that then you do that without bragging about it. Now, admittedly, this could be very challenging to live out, particularly when we talk about showing kindness toward those that have hurt you or persecuted you. But can I offer you a suggestion that I've found personally helpful, and I'm trying to live this out in my life. I know I don't do it perfectly, but I do find it helpful when I actually act on it. So like all people, there are people in my life who have blessed me immensely. And there are people in my life who have either hurt me or persecuted me, sometimes deeply. And admittedly, my natural inclination and my natural impulse is to hurt those who have hurt me, or at least if I'm not hurting those who hurt me, protecting myself from being hurt further. I think that's the natural impulse. Like when you think about and you examine your motives, you think, all right, let me look through what's going on in my mind and in my heart. I think the natural impulse is to say, all right, I need to, 
I need to hurt them because they're hurting me. Or I, I need to avoid them because they're hurting me. And yet, when you look at what Scripture tells us, tells me, tells you that Christ's calling on our lives is for us to treat others like He's graciously treated us. And so one of the things that He's been teaching me throughout the course of my life is to to do something that helps to facilitate forgiveness in my heart. And that's this. To begin praying, so we're talking about earlier being constant in prayer, to begin praying intentionally for those who've hurt me. Whether they've hurt me recently, whether they've hurt me a long time ago, begin intentionally praying for them. And then, this is the other thing that the Lord's been teaching me in recent years. Follow that up with doing something nice for the person that you're struggling to forgive. Follow it up by doing something nice for the person that you're struggling to forgive. And so I've been starting to add that to that, you know, not just praying for them, but also actively when it's possible. Some people I don't really see at this season of my life, and, and, uh, and some it would just not be, you know, it just wouldn't be practical just by virtue of distance, I guess. And some aren't even living any longer. But when it's possible, find a way to actively follow up your prayers for them by doing something nice for them. And what I've noticed is it starts to help release my feelings of resentment. It just helps me to give it up. Because I think it's hard to pray for somebody and start doing something for their benefit and holding on to resentment at the same time. So if you can identify with what I'm saying about that, and what the Apostle Paul's stressing here in Romans 12, let me encourage you to pray for those who hurt you. Not just theoretically, but today. Pray for them. I'd also encourage you to do something like this. Write them a note of encouragement. Or send them a gift card to go out to eat. Or meet a need in some other area that you know that they have that you might have the capacity to meet. But do something that follows up your prayers with visible action and do it before you feel emotionally ready to do it. Don't wait till you feel emotionally ready to do it. Do it before you feel emotionally ready to do it because I believe it'll probably heal up or speed up the healing process and speed up the reconciliation process while also giving glory to Christ who will empower you to do that very thing. Again, what's Paul encouraging us to do is the Holy Spirit inspires him to write these things down. Bless those who persecute you. Treat the people that you used to avoid in a new way. Because Christ now lives within you. There's one other thing that, that comes up in this portion of Scripture that I think is evidence of Christ's presence in our life, and that's this. When a person comes to faith in Christ... They begin overcoming evil instead, instead of being overcome by it. Look at what it says in verse 19 down to the end of the chapter. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
So as we look at these last couple verses during our, our final few minutes here, let me ask an, a, a, kind of an additional question to what I asked earlier. When you were growing up as a child, did you believe that your parents loved you? Could be a very uh, awkward question, don't you think? Did you believe that your parents loved you? Some would say, no. And some would say, yes. Now, if your answer is yes, let me follow it up with this. If your answer is yes to that question, did you believe that your parents loved you? How did they convince you of it? So I'm certain that there's a way that they convinced you of it. And I'm guessing if you felt loved, you also felt cared for, and you also felt defended. I think it would be both. I think you felt cared for, and I think you felt defended. By the way, I could still remember a time when I started at a new school, so this is fourth grade, and uh, when you're a guy starting out at a new school, especially where I grew up, uh, there was inevitably someone who was going to test you in some way. And I remember getting off the bus one day, and a kid came up to me, and he had taken a whole bunch of ketchup packets from the lunchroom. And he took all those ketchup packets, and he had them all opened, and he put them all in his hand. And then he took his hand filled with ketchup and put it all in my eyes, right when I got off the bus, put it all in my eyes, knowing that it would burn my eyes. And then he took me by the arm and dragged me across the street and started punching me, knowing I couldn't see. And I remember being like, it was kind of crazy because I'm getting, one second I'm getting off the bus, and the next second I can't see, and someone's punching my face repeatedly. And uh, it was very tricky to try and defend yourself in that context. And I remember, those of you that knew my mother, um, not, not the biggest person in the world, um, and uh, like moments later, I, apparently she'd come down to the bus stop and she's seeing what's taking place. And I remember seeing my little mom chase that kid up a very steep embankment and watch that, I watched that kid run home and I was like, what is going on? And you know, I'm trying to get this stuff out of my eyes and I'm, I'm like dealing with the embarrassment of not only just being punched in the face several times, but also the fact that now my mom is screaming and yelling at some kid, chasing him up a hill. I'm like, what has is, what is my life become? You know, like, I am new to this school. I, I don't know that I'm going to live down either part of this story. And, uh, but now I see it differently as I look back at it. And I think to myself, I was like, okay, well, that's a moment. Yeah, maybe I felt a little embarrassed in that moment, but looking back at it with the eyes of a parent, see it differently. Because is that not a moment, even if you felt embarrassed in a moment like that, would that not convince you that you are cared for and defended? Would that not be visible evidence that somebody loves you? They would be willing to chase a kid, just smeared ketchup in your son's face, started hitting him, chase him up a hill until that kid ran home, you're cared for. You're defended. Follow-up question to that. Do you believe God loves you? Do you actually believe God loves you? If Christ lives within you, keep in mind that when the Father looks at you, He sees the Son. That's what Scripture teaches. As God the Father looks at you, and Christ lives within you, then He sees the Son living within you. And He loves you with the same love that He has for Christ. The same love that God the Father has for Jesus Christ is the same love that He has for you. As Christ is living within you, He sees His Son within you. And since you're loved by Him, He cares for you. 
And since you're loved by him, he defends you. In fact, he makes it clear that you don't need to avenge yourselves against your adversaries because you could leave that up to God who defends you because he loves you with that kind of love. And God displays his care and his defense of his children all throughout his word. And I was recently reading, uh, earlier just this week, in fact, I was reading through the book of Exodus, and I noticed a particular set of verses that caught my attention. I've read them before, but it caught my attention in a new way. And in that portion of Scripture from Exodus, it's in Exodus chapter 23, in fact, you have God describing how he was going to defend and protect the people of Israel as they walked toward and moved into the promised land. And look what the Scripture tells us God did for them. He says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. That's in Exodus chapter 23. The Lord says, I will send hornets before you. Isn't that fascinating? The the fact that the Lord was willing to say to the children of Israel, I will send hornets to sting your adversaries and chase them in a direction in order to defend you. I will bug those who are bugging you with actual bugs, right? I will, I will swarm them with bugs so that they leave you alone. I was like, that's a very creative, uh, defensive approach. But God does that for His kids. So if the Lord's not, you know... Uh, to beyond us, to utilize hornets to sting those who would be adversaries to his children. If he loves us with that kind of creativity, should our hearts not be convinced of this kind of truth? And when you look at what Scripture is telling us here as it finishes up, you know, it's teaching us things like we don't have to attend every fight we're invited to. We don't have to attend every argument we get invited to. We don't have to stoop to the level of of sinister activity employed by those who might be trying to harm us. Rather, we can feed those who hurt us. We can give them something to drink. We can show them kindness because the Lord's going to take care of fighting the battles for us when they really need to be fought. And sometimes He's pretty creative in His approach to fighting those battles. So instead of being overcome by evil like so many are, Scripture teaches us we can overcome evil with the goodness of God that lives within us through Jesus Christ. And when we overcome evil with good, instead of being overcome by evil like we once were, we once again demonstrate that our hearts have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is making us more and more and more like Christ. Look at what we're told in 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18, it says, So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. The Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit's making us more and more and more like Christ. So again, if you believe in Jesus Christ, I believe there's going to be evidence of that belief that He brings out in your life. I believe when we look at Romans chapter 12 and it gives us some of these categories here, it's teaching us that Christ's Christ's love really will transform us. It's going to have a transformative effect on us. We'll begin treating people that we used to avoid in a new way. We'll overcome evil instead instead of being overcome by it. And again, this is more than just an improvement to our character. 
This is evidence that we've been brought from death to new life in Jesus Christ. And this is what that new life looks like. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word and for the privilege that it is to be able to come together right now and just meditate on what Your Word states. and To think about how these things are applicable to us. Lord, we recognize that naturally speaking, we would go in the opposite direction of what this Scripture is describing. Our natural inclination would be to treat people that harm us in a hurtful way. Our natural inclination would be to avoid those who cause us pain. Our natural inclination would be to just get kind of lost in the recesses of our minds, focusing on our selfish desires instead of welcoming the transformative power of Your love. But Lord, we're grateful for the evidence that You give to us of what it looks like when a person truly believes in You. Lord, it's clear that You change our thinking, You change our attitude, You change our approach to circumstances, persecution, tribulations, all sorts of things, adversity. You change our perspective toward these things. And You change our actions. The ways in which we treated others begins to reflect and mirror the ways in which You've treated us. We become mindful of the fact that we are recipients of Your mercy and recipients of Your love. And so then, through Your power, we're motivated to begin displaying these things to others. Lord, we're grateful that when You looked at us, You didn't expect us to have our act together. You did, you did not expect us to have everything figured out in life or to be perfect already for You to choose to fellowship with us. You looked at us while we were dead. You looked at us while we were seeking to go through our day-to-day as Your enemies. And it was into that context that You reached in and did something about the mess that we were creating. We were blaming You for our mess while at the same time denying Your existence, while at the same time going about our own way and and idolizing our own preferences and living selfishly and avoiding admitting our need for You. And then You opened our eyes. You removed that veil that was blinding our thinking and You helped us to see the condition that we were in and the need that we had for You, our Savior. So Lord, we're grateful for the fact that You've done this and we're grateful for the reminders that You're giving to us through Your Word that You are empowering us to live a new life because You've given us life. We were dead, You've given us new life, and now You're empowering us to live it out. So Lord, we pray that that would be that the life that You've given us to live would be a powerful testimony to Your power at work within us, that there would be others who observe the transformation that You're facilitating in our thinking and in our living, and that they would be blessed as a result, and that they would come to know You, and that they would desire to walk with You, and that they would welcome You, Jesus, as their Savior and Lord as well. So we thank You for these things, and we thank You for the privilege to be able to meditate on them today. We pray, Lord, that You permeate our minds and our hearts with this truth, and that we would walk with You each and every day as people who are grateful for your love toward us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.